2: Today may be Valentine's Day, but our subject is anything other than romantic. In the early hours of the 13th of February 1692, in the rugged and beautiful mountains of Glencoe in the Highlands of Scotland, the MacDonalds were massacred by the Scottish army. It was a political act a consequence of the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688-89, in which King James II of England and VII of Scotland had been deposed and replaced by his Protestant daughter Mary and her husband, William of Orange. But this wasn't business as usual. Even by the standards of the time, what happened at Clencoe was considered an atrocity and an act of mass murder. To explore how it came to this, And to mark the 330th anniversary of the massacre, I'm joined by Dr. Alan Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy is a lecturer in history at the University of Dundee, and consultant editor of the popular magazine History Scotland. His research focuses on the political and social history of early modern Scotland, especially on the late 17th and early 18th centuries his list of published academic journal articles is as long as your arm and his prize-winning first book was governing gaeldon the scottish highlands and the restoration state 1660 to 1688 dr kendy thank you so much for joining me today on not just the tudors to talk about this awful event For those for whom the Glencoe Massacre rings a distant bell, could you give a little reminder of what exactly happened on the day before we discuss more about why it happened?
1: Absolutely. The outline story is actually pretty straightforward. Basically, what happened the early morning of the thirteenth of February, 1692, we have two companies of soldiers from the Scottish Army, about 120 men who launch a complete surprise attack on the inhabitants of Glen Coe, which is a small valley in western Scotland. They start this attack around about 5am and spread out across the valley in small groups of about 20 or so, with orders to kill as many people as they can find and to basically wreak as much devastation as they can, which they proceed to do. And by the middle of that morning, around about 40 of the residents of Glencoe are lying dead on the ground, and dozens more have fled into the hills surrounding them. So in a nutshell, that's the story of Glencoe. It's a surprise and completely unexpected attack by the Scottish army on a civilian population in the Western Highlands.
2: Now, the traditional interpretation has been that the massacre was the result of a feud between two clans, between the Campbells and the MacDonalds. How true is that?
1: It's complicated. And the reason that this narrative exists is because the Campbells are involved in this story. The Campbells, of course, traditionally had been the most powerful of the Highland clans, headed by the Earls, later marquesses, later Dukes of Argyll, the most powerful noblemen in Scotland. There'd been a lot of traditional antipathy between the Campbells and actually various other Highland clans, including the MacDonalds. And on the day of Glencoe occurs, there are Campbell fingerprints involved here. The man in charge of the soldiers in Glencoe is Robert Campbell of Lyon, a captain in the Scottish Army, but a member of Clan Campbell. The troops that are performing the massacre are drawn from a regiment which had been raised by the Earl of Argyll, and most of them were probably from the Argyll region of the southwestern Highlands. And there are also rumours floating around that Premier Campbell nobleman, the Earl of Argyll, but also John Campbell, Earl of Bridalben, another very powerful Campbell peer, there are rumours that these two have been behind the massacre, behind the scenes. However, I think to interpret from that that this is the result of a feud between these two families would be a mistake, because this is unambiguously an action committed by the Scottish government and by the Scottish army under the orders of the Scottish government. This is not something that the Campbells cook up and impose. This is something that the Scottish government, which is not led by Campbells, decides to do. I think we can trace a Campbell presence here, but that doesn't mean by any stretch of the imagination that this is the consequence of a long-standing feud, or that it is the fault of the Campbells that the massacre happened.
2: Okay, so before we go a bit more into that, let's kind of zoom out a bit and think a bit about the political situation at the time. So just a few years earlier, down in England, the Protestant William and Mary, Mary, of course, a Stuart, the daughter of James II, had taken the throne from James II because he was Catholic and they were Protestant. The so-called Glorious Revolution in 1688. Which obviously is an interruption to the sort of standard principle of the way the throne is inherited, male primogeniture. What bearing does that have on the Glencoe massacre a few years later?
1: Mm -hmm. In many ways, the events of the Glorious Revolution, which is a term that's not often used in Scotland for reasons which I think will become clear (laughs) soon. The Glencoe massacre comes as a result of the events surrounding the revolution. So, in Scotland, James Seventh, as he is also overthrown. There's a bit of a debate as to whether that was a sort of distinctive Scottish revolution or whether it was the Scots playing catch-up. I don't think we need to worry about that for the purposes of this. The point is that James is also overthrown in Scotland and William and Mary are accepted as king and queen in the spring of 1689. What's different about Scotland compared to England, though, is that we have an immediate attempt at a counter-revolution in what's often known as the first Jacobite rising. Almost immediately after William and Mary are proclaimed, followers of James VII, the Jacobites obviously, under the leadership of John Graham of Claverhouse, Viscount Dundee, one of James's fiercest adherents in Scotland, they immediately begin an armed insurrection with the aim of returning James to the Scottish throne, and presumably from that basis, the English and Irish thrones as well. Ultimately, that rising, despite an early victory over government troops at the Battle of Killycrankie in July of 1689, which gives the government a terrible fright, despite that, the rising peters out in no small measure, I think, because Dundee is killed at Killycrankie, And over the next couple of years, 1690, 1691, the rising begins to disintegrate. For our purposes, though, what's important about that is that most of the manpower behind that Jacobite attempted counter-revolution had been drawn from the Highlands, and particularly from the Highland clans, among whom were the MacDonalds of Glencoe, the family that resides in Glencoe and that is the subject of the massacre. And so we can see the massacre of Glencoe in some ways as the final action in the government's attempts to suppress the jacobite rising the jacobite attempted counter revolution and to secure william and mary on the throne so that is the link i think between the revolution and glencoe there is a reasonably clear through line between those two events
2: That's very helpful and it's also very helpful that you've reminded us we always say james the 6th and 1st but it's also james the 7th and 2nd the scottish nominal system counts as well as the English one. And I thought it probably also worth glossing that Jacobite, for those who are thinking, why is it like that? It's just Jacobus is James in Latin. They're supporters of James's cause. So you were saying about the glorious revolution insofar as in England, no one died. In Scotland, it looks like it was a far more bloody affair.
1: Yes, it absolutely was. The attempted counter-revolution, the Jacobite Rising, whatever you want to call it, is a bloody affair. Lots of people are killed on both sides. There's lower level violence as well running through the revolution, particularly around ejection of ministers who are deemed to be unsuitable, given the, the church settlement that comes about after the revolution. So yes, it's unsettled, it's violent, it's unstable in Scotland. It's not as bad as it is in Ireland, where the violence is really terrible. Nonetheless, it's pretty grisly in Scotland. So it is important, And I think this helps us make sense of why the massacre happens. It is not a peaceful process that's neatly tied up within a few months of James's flight overseas at the end of 1688. It is a much more drawn out, much more violent, for the will, you might say, a much more frightening process in Scotland, I think, than we're used to thinking of it as in England.
2: And it just shows what an English perspective we have had on history that we've ever talked about it. And they said, oh, it was a revolution in which no one died. Let's talk a bit about the religious background to the massacre. William and Mary have replaced James because of a religious question. How does the religious question play into what will transpire in Glencoe?
1: This is where Scotland diverges a little bit from England, certainly in the details. In Scotland, as in England, there's a Roman Catholic and Protestant tension here. James is Catholic. That is no more welcome to Scots than it is for a lot of people in England. The difference, though, comes when the revolution occurs and when the settlement of the revolution is imposed in 1689 to 90, because it's a very particular kind of Protestantism that comes in to replace James's Catholicism. It's Presbyterianism, and um, that distinctly Scottish form of church government, government, but also tied to a Calvinist theology. So it's quite an austere, quite a strict form of Protestantism. And more importantly, for our purposes, it's monolithic. The principle underpinning the revolution in Scotland is that the Presbyterian Church of Scotland is the only permitted church in Scotland. It's the one true church, it's the state church, you're not allowed to be anything else. In theory, It's fuzzier than that in practice. But the way this ties into Glencoe is there are suspicions that the McDonald's of Glencoe and various other Jacobites are not Presbyterian. Some of them are thought to be Catholic, Others are thought to be Episcopalian, which is another form of Protestantism that had been vying with Presbyterianism in Scotland for most of the 17th century.
2: So Episcopalian just to mean, as in you've got a structure of bishops and church hierarchy as opposed to a sort of flat authority structure as in the Presbyterian church?
1: Absolutely. In Episcopalian church, you've got bishops who control the church. In a Presbyterian system, individual parishes are the bedrock of authority and it flows up through a hierarchy of courts up to the General Assembly, which is the national parliament of the church almost. What's interesting actually in the Scottish context is by this point, there's actually very little theological difference between the Presbyterian and Episcopalian church. Not none, there are emerging differences, but they actually believe more or less the same thing. This is largely a dispute about structure and about governance, but it's no less fierce for that. And so the suspicion that you are Catholic or that you are Episcopalian, and that attaches to the McDonald's of Glencoe, can help to solidify a reputation for being suspect politically. Because if you are not signed up to the Presbyterian Church settlement, you are therefore not signed up to the Revolution, and therefore not potentially a loyal subject of William and Mary. There's some debate as to whether the McDonald's of Gleng were Catholic or Episcopalian. they were probably Episcopalian rather than Catholic, but they definitely weren't Presbyterian. And that's the problem from the government's perspective.
2: Okay, so what's happening in the years between, say, the end of 1690 to this massacre of February 1692? What happens in those couple of years?
1: Basically, this is a process of trying to bed the revolution, while simultaneously trying to defeat the Jacobite threat in the Highlands. Now, after the Battle of Killycrankie, within a couple of months of that, the Jacobite rising, so we're in the middle of 1689 here, is pretty much in retreat, but it's a long, slow retreat. So the government's in this process of trying to ensure military supremacy in the Highlands while also trying to tempt these rebellious chiefs to come back in and support William and Mary. They have various tactics for doing that. One of them is a military one, which is simply to flood the Highlands with troops. And this is where we get the emergence, for the very first time in Scotland, of a permanent military garrison stationed in the Highlands with a mandate to impose law and order and to try and quell rebellions. And this is what becomes known later as Fort William, and obviously gives its name to the town that has since grown up around it. And I said a moment ago that was the first time that had happened happened under Oliver Cromwell. We'd had a fort at what was then Inverlochy, which is the same place. But this is the first time a Scottish government has done it. And that's emblematic of William and William's government's efforts to just ensure it has enough troops in the Highlands to defeat any Jacobite action, but also simply to keep a lid on affairs to ensure that people are behaving themselves. At the same time, as the government is using the stick in that way, it's also using the carrot by repeatedly trying to negotiate with these Jacobite clans to pull them back in. And the key moment for that comes in the summer of 1691, when the government dispatches the Earl of Bradalbin, who we've already met, one of the chief Campbell earls, well, one of the two chief Campbell noblemen in the country, dispatches him to a negotiation with the rebellious chiefs at a place called Achalader in Perthshire gives them a slush fund of £12,000 Scots to lubricate the negotiations. And what Bradalbin does with these clans is he negotiates a ceasefire, a cessation, to last until the end of 1691. And the thinking there is if you can stop these chiefs and the clans surrounding them from actively fighting, that gives you space to A, secure the country, but B, tempt them back in and persuade them that they are best coming back to the side of William and Mary. So that's what's going on up until the end of 1691. Those are the tactics that William's government is using to quell this rising in the Highlands.
2: Right. So trying to make sure that the Highlanders are kind of pacified. Yeah. Now, let's zero in on the Glencoe MacDonalds. Tell us about them. Who were they? (laughs)
1: They are what's called a sept, a subgroup within the wider Macdonald clan. The Macdonalds were one of the biggest and most powerful Highland clans, the families that control affairs in the Highlands. There are various septs of the Macdonalds who are bigger or smaller, depending on who you're talking about. The Glencoe Macdonalds are one of the smaller septs. They're a small group of perhaps 200 families who are part of this clan network, living in Glencoe, exclusively in that little valley. What's interesting about the Macdonalds of Glencoe and, and what's important for the story of the massacre is that by the time we get to William's reign in the 1690s, the McDonalds of Glencoe have a really black reputation for being incorrigibly lawless and for being involved in all sorts of robberies and raidings and other lawbreaking. And they are therefore regarded as one of the three or four Worst, most lawless, most barbarous clans in Highland Scotland, and that feeds in to the government's thinking behind the massacre.
2: Are they poor? Because I look at Glencoe, and it's obviously one of the most gloriously beautiful places on God's earth. But it probably was quite a difficult place to live in the 1690s and to make a living. So were they a poor group or have I missed something?
1: I don't think they're a wealthy clan. You're right, Glencoe is not a particularly easy part of the world to make a living. But in common with most of the highlands, they probably make their living through pastoral agriculture, which is a little more doable in these parts of the world they are a poor clan. The chief, Alistair Macdonald, sometimes known as Mackean, is not one of the great wealthy landlords of Scotland. But he is equally not scrabbling around in poverty. He has a reasonably substantial household. So on the poor side, but not dirt poor peasants scrabbling in the mud.
2: Now, tell us about the Oath of Allegiance, because this is going to be crucial, and why the clan chief of the Macdonalds, Alistair Macdonald, Alistair Mackean, missed the deadline to swear the oath.
1: The oath of allegiance had been introduced in 1689, not to, as anything specifically to do with the Highlands, but as a general political oath that is designed to bed down the revolution. So It's a very simple oath, it's only a single line, and people who are required to take the oath simply are swearing their allegiance to William and Mary. It's a standard thing in a Scottish context. In the context of Glencoe, what happens is after that cessation of a Achalader, William's government decides that's not quite enough, so at the end of August 1691, they announced that as well as having signed the Peace of Achaladur, all the rebellious clans, or their chiefs rather, on behalf of the clan must take the Oath of Allegiance before the 1st of January 1692. If they do that, they will be taken back into the King's Peace and everything will be forgiven. If they don't, then they can expect Punishment. So all of the clan chiefs are put on notice that they need to have taken the oath in person by the 1st of January. And of course, the problem for the McDonalds of Glencoe is that their chief misses the deadline by a couple of days. Now, the reason he does that, there's two reasons. One is that he is reluctant to swear the oath until he is released from his prior obligations to King James. And that doesn't happen until December. The exiled ex-King James announces that everybody in Scotland who had previously taken an oath to him is absolved from it so they can take this new oath to William in order to save their lives, essentially. That happens quite late. It only gives a few weeks for Macian to take the oath. So he goes off and he does it, and he arrives on time before the end of 1691, ready to take the oath. The problem is he has gone to Fort William. To do that. And there's nobody in Fort William legally empowered to take his oath. The only people who can do it are sheriffs or sheriff's officers. The nearest one of them is in Inverary, which is in Argyll, a good distance away from Fort William. So what McKeon has to do is toddle through the winter weather from Fort William, in Verlochy to Inverary to give his oath. And by the time he gets there, he's a few days late. The deadline has passed. It's an inadvertent missing of the deadline, or it seems to be an inadvertent missing of the deadline, but it is a missing of the deadline, and that provides the foundation for the massacre.
2: Like a toddler, I just want to scream, it's not fair, because this man is a man of integrity who waits to be released from his previous oath before making another one, and who goes to where he thinks he can make the oath and there's no one there to take it. It's just so appalling when you know what's going to happen next.
1: Yes, it is. And I think the way we get our heads around that is to remember just how black the Glencoe MacDonald's reputation had been, not just among supporters of William, but for multiple Scottish governments going back decades. They are thought to be lawless, barbaric, uncivilised. And in fact, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that William's ministers had been hoping that McKeon would miss the deadline because they really wanted to beat the Glencoe MacDonalds up a little bit because they were so troublesome and because they thought doing so would be a neat advert for what happens to you if you disobey William. The response, when you know the massacre is coming, looks wildly disproportionate to the offence. But from the point of view of William's government, there are reasons for that, perhaps not good reasons, but there are reasons for the response being so severe and so disproportionate.
2: Is it the reputation of the Glencoe MacDonald's that explains why Scottish troops are quartered with them before the massacre as well?
1: Yeah, this is one of the sources of confusion around the whole affair because you're right, troops had been quartered in Glencoe for about a fortnight. The troops who commit the massacre had been living in Glencoe for about a fortnight before they committed the massacre. Now, the reason they were there technically was because the McDonald's hadn't been paying their taxes. So what the troops were doing was extracting free quarter, which is a perfectly standard, established mechanism for punishing people who are not paying their taxes. The idea is that if you quarter troops on their land, the, the deficients, the people who haven't paid the tax, are therefore bearing the cost of these troops and indirectly paying their taxes. So that's what's going on. That's why the troops are there on paper, is to quarter. I think it's pretty clear that there is a subtext to that, though, which is that these are troublesome McDonald's. We don't know if we trust them. Having troops in the Glen would be useful anyway. I said a moment ago that this is a source of confusion because a lot of people assume that the troops had been living there as the McDonald's guests, honoured friends. They weren't there as guests. They were there on a punitive mission. But nonetheless, they had been living among them for about a fortnight. And that's what happens in the lead up to the massacre.
2: And nonetheless, they may well have known the names of some of the people who would be put to the sword and have dined at the table with them.
1: There is no doubt that there had been face-to-face interaction between these troops, particularly between the commanding officers or the commanders of these troops and the McDonald's of Glencoe. I'm sure there had been social interactions as well. Whether they were there as honoured guests or as troops quartering, there's still that sense of horror underpinning this because this looks much more personal and much more like a visceral betrayal than you might ordinarily expect from a punitive mission being visited upon a population. How can toilet training cows help save the planet? Should we start renting our clothes? And why on earth is beds from the Happy Mondays now keeping bees? I'm Jimmy Doherty, TV presenter, farmer and conservationist. And these are just a few of the questions we'll be answering on my new podcast on Jimmy's Farm from History Hit. Join me on the farm to hear from the likes of the founder of the Eden Project, Sir Tim Smith, Professor Dieter Helm on how to stop climate change and my old friend, Jamie Oliver. Listen to On Jimmy's Farm now, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Okay, so what triggers the massacre?
1: This is actually one of the big questions. Technically, what triggers it is orders that Glen Lyon receives from his commanding officer the night before. He has sent written orders which say very explicitly at 5am tomorrow morning, that's the 13th of February, you are to fall upon the clan and put everybody to the sword. That's the immediate trigger. The big question, of course, is how we get to those orders. What was the chain of orders that leads to that? And it's not entirely clear. The process seems to begin with King William issuing orders at the end of January, authorising severity against the McDonald's of Glencoe. And what seems to happen is that as those orders pass through the hierarchy, they are hardened up. So that William's order for severity of some unspecified kind becomes a detailed order to commit a massacre. And one of the big debates over Glencoe at the time, and even today, is how does that happen and who is responsible for it? And there's no complete clarity over the answers to those questions, I'm afraid.
2: Yes, because there are a number of candidates, aren't there? There's Captain Campbell, who you've mentioned already. There's, well, William, you say, is probably some distance away from it. Lord Dalrymple, I've come across as well.
1: Yes, I said that there's no answer to who's responsible, but the finger of suspicion usually does point at James Dalrymple, Master of Stair, who is William's Secretary of State, one of his senior ministers in the Scottish government. And the accusation against him is that he's the one who takes Williams orders notices some sort of ambiguity in them and takes it upon himself to harden them up in order to facilitate the massacre if we're looking for a candidate for who is responsible for bringing about the massacre Stair is the one who is usually singled out having said that There are lots of other people whose fingerprints are all over this process. William clearly has something to do with it. He's the king, after all. It's his government and it's his orders, either because they're ambiguous or because they're deliberately massaged, whatever, it's his orders that allow this to happen. There's Glen Lyon himself, who you mentioned in command of the troops, although, to be honest, it's difficult to see what else he could have done. The orders were pretty explicit. But there are also various levels within the army. The immediate commanding officer of Glen Lyon, the man who writes the orders, is Major Robert Duncanson. Clearly he's got some role to play because he writes the orders. So there are lots of other people whose fingerprints you can see here. And even behind the scenes, there are rumours at the time. There are shadowy figures dripping poison in Steer's ears to try and spur him on to facilitate this massacre. The Earl of Argyll is accused at various points. He's thought to be whispering away, trying to persuade Steer to do something like this. The Earl of Bredalbin, the man who had negotiated that ceasefire at Achalder, he is also sometimes accused of having a role in this. So there's lots of candidates for people who have some kind of role, but the one who is usually held up as the man closest to being responsible is probably Steer. I think.
2: So I want to ask two questions about the brutality The first is why it becomes a massacre. Why does it become quite so murderous? And the second is about their choice of target. Because if they are instructed as soldiers to put to the sword every man under 70, which is what I believe the instructions were, why were they killing women and children as well?
1: I'll take the second of those questions first, because the interesting thing is that the orders Duncanson issues don't actually specify men under 70. They say everyone under 70. Now, I suppose if you were minded to be sympathetic towards the government, you might say the only men bit might be taken as implicit because that's normally what you would expect to happen. But the orders nonetheless are explicit. Do not explicitly say women and children should not be killed. We might choose not to be giving the benefit of the doubt to the government if we answer the first question that you asked me there, which is about why the massacre becomes so violent, why it's not just capture the chief and execute him. Why is it a massacre? I think the reason for that goes back again to that black reputation of the McDonald's of Glencoe. And I think what the government's thinking in so far as we can untangle it is that we need to make an example of this clan, or we need to make an example of somebody to show people that they need to not flirt with Jacobitism. The McDonald's look like a really good target for that because of that black reputation, because they were very clearly Jacobite, and because they're quite a small group. And I think the government's thinking seems to be, well, the best way of sending our message, the best way of underlining just how dangerous it is to cross Williams' government, is to do something really dramatic, like... massacre. So I think the use of such extreme violence is facilitated by this prehistory of suspicion and hatred of the McDonald's, but it also flows from a definite policy of using terror, and a very extreme form of terror, to try and shore up William's regime. And in that context, the killing of women and children. There's not many women and children killed. It is mainly men, as it happens, but there are some women, there are some young people who are killed. Within the context of that wider situation, the killing of women and children makes sense and underlines that this is not an attempt just to hobble the McDonald's as a fighting force or anything like that. It is an attempted extirpation, an attempt to get rid of this family because they're regarded to deserve it and because it's regarded as being politically useful to do so.
2: What I can't square is how this is happening in the 1690s. It feels so against the rule of law and against the proper ordering of society. They're not obeying, so you go in and try and eradicate the clan. It feels extraordinarily appalling, even by the standards of the 17th century.
1: Yeah, it is. It's worth bearing in mind that the Scottish government, not just Williams, but previous Scottish governments, has form here in being a bit rough and ready. We're not too far past the killing time, which is a period of harrying Presbyterians when Presbyterianism hadn't been the state church before the revolution, which is pretty brutal as well. It's nowhere near as brutal as Glencoe. There's much more a facade of legal nicety about it. But nonetheless, there is a prehistory of the Scottish government being a bit more willing to use force and willing to use dubious means than we might expect. But nonetheless, Glencoe is shocking, and it's regarded as shocking at the time. It's not as if people heard about Glencoe and thought, oh, that's okay, there's nothing to see there. There was an outcry about this. But I think the reason it can happen, because I don't think that something like the massacre with Glencoe would have happened had the Macdonalds been a Lowland family. It's because they are Highland and a Gaelic family, and therefore have been tarred with this discourse that has been developing in the lowlands for centuries, actually, that Gaelic-speaking Highlanders are backward, are barbaric, are uncivilised. Or it's a discourse that's in some ways akin to the sorts of narratives that are attached to native peoples in the New World. Not entirely, there are some important differences. And I think, for example, most people recognise that Highland Scots are Scots. They are subjects of the king, that they're not some other subgroup. Nonetheless, that narrative, that pejorative, very caustic attitude towards Highlanders, is part of the matrix that allows Glencoe to happen, and which explains why something that I don't think would have happened in Lowland Scotland or in England can happen in Highland Scotland, even at this late stage in the early modern period.
2: Yes, I mean, that is a classic situation in which speech acts of violence create the mental space for acts of actual violence in body. And it happens again and again. I mean, think of the wars of religion or whatever. This is a classic scenario that they have been dehumanised and therefore can be attacked.
1: Absolutely. And that kind of thing has been happening to Highlanders before the 1690s. So it's not a new thing in William's reign, but Glencoe is a particularly grisly zenith.
2: Now, what did this act of genocide achieve, if anything? Did it have any point in the end?
1: I think we can take a guess as to what it was supposed to achieve. William does not face significant Jacobite agitation in Scotland for the rest of his reign, although it comes back in Anne's reign, and obviously into the reign of the Hanoverian monarchs, it comes roaring back. I think it's also more widely designed to shore up William's regime, and possibly, if we accept the narrative that the Master of Stair is pulling the strings here, it's designed to cement his authority and his hold on government office. If the aim was to strengthen William's position to strengthen Stair's position, it absolutely does not work, because it very quickly becomes what we might anachronistically call a public relations disaster for William in Scotland. It takes a couple of months, but from the second half of 1692, details about the massacre begin to leak out. The first printed account is printed in Paris towards the end of 1692. And from that point on, people come to know the details of Glencoe, and there is outrage and that there's a very strong outcry which is expressed in pamphlets and in other literature but also within the Scottish Parliament which at this point in time is quite a powerful institution. It has been strengthened by the revolution and Parliament is outraged by this and demands an inquiry into the massacre, which William's government manages to stall for a few years, but eventually has to set one up in 1695, which reports back very quickly and is pretty damning in its conclusions. It says that the massacre had been inhumane. It says it had been impossible to justify it, calls it explicitly murder, and it declares that a scapegoat has to be found, that somebody has to be held responsible for this. Naturally enough, that's not William. The report says that the king had nothing to do with this. Army officers are also exonerated, so the The person that the inquiry pins the blame on is the master of Stair and explicitly says, Oh, the master, for his own political reasons, had twisted William's orders and caused this massacre. And as a result, Stair is eased out as Secretary of State before the end of 1695. That's all. There's no further punishment. If the point of Glencoe had been to strengthen William's regime and to strengthen Stair, it fails very miserably in those aims. And in fact, it becomes part of a much wider tapestry of unhappiness about William's reign in Scotland. By the time he dies in 1702, he is roundly hated in Scotland for a multitude of reasons. And one of those is the massacre of Glencoe. It may be put a lid on Jacobitism for 15 years or so, but that's about it. And whether the cost from the government's point of view, from a purely political point of view, was worth it is questionable.
2: You mentioned 15 years. And the other thing that happens 15 years later is the act of union between England and Scotland. Is there any clear line through from the massacre to the Act of Union, do you think?
1: There's not a clear line in the sense of the massacre leads directly through a series of steps to the Union. However, I think it is part of a wider environment because William, by the time he dies in 1702, is roundly loathed by much of Scotland. And the reason for that is that the 1690s, for a variety of reasons, had been a really unhappy decade for Scotland. Not only Glencoe, but the infamous Darien disaster as well, which had been a huge national humiliation for Scotland, this doomed attempt to establish a colony on the isthmus of Panama, which the Scots are furious with William about. They regard him as having spiked the operation. There's also the consequences of the Nine Years' War, William's big war against Louis XIV, which he drags Scotland into, which has significant consequences for Scotland in terms of economic damage. There's also the fact that the economy is chugging along very poorly in the 1690s. Most Scots are feeling poorer, are feeling the squeeze. There's a famine too, a really serious famine throughout most of the second half of the 1690s, which causes Scotland to lose probably about 10% of its population through either death or emigration. So you put all this together, and what you have is a sense that William's reign has been a bit of a disaster. But the reason it's been a disaster, so some Scots come to conclude, is because the political constitutional status quo Is clearly not working. And that status quo had been in place since 1603, and it is sharing a monarch with England, but otherwise being independent. Scotland is, up until 1707, theoretically completely independent apart from sharing a monarch. And what the 1690s seems to demonstrate is that system isn't working anymore. That causes Scots to cast around for a solution. And the solution that eventually comes along, with a lot of prodding from the English side, but also championed by some Scots as well, is union that Union will solve the problem. Joining Scotland and England more fully will get rid of the structural instability that had supposedly underpinned the disasters of the 1690s and allow Scotland to flourish again. If there is a link between Glencoe and the Union, it is that Glencoe is one of the big ticket items that is feeding that sense of unhappiness and insecurity that helps to facilitate the Union in the first half of Anne's reign.
2: Well, that's very, very useful to think about the possible impact of it. Although, in the end, I still can't help but think, these poor, possibly brutish, but certainly brutalised people of Glencoe are paying a very high price.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's important for us, and this is actually, I think, important for us as historians generally, particularly for this episode, is not to lose sight of the fact that this is a human tragedy. We can analyse and we should analyse the causes and consequences of this from a whole range of perspectives. But ultimately, what we have is nearly 40 people who die as a result of the massacre and dozens more whose lives are completely uprooted. It does seem that eventually the surviving McDonald's of Glencoe do drift back into the Glen and do try and pick up their lives where they left off. But it's not the same. The damage done to the clan is immense. There's nobody living in Glencoe, it's deserted, and that's obviously a consequence of the later Highland clearances. But it also, I think, feeds back to the trauma that had been suffered in 1692. That explains, I think, why the massacre of Glencoe does have a fixed place in Scottish popular memory and popular culture. There are songs, there are poems, there's literature in Scotland which has dealt with the massacre and which continues to do so. There are monuments in the Glen to the massacre. And I believe even the George R.R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire was influenced to some extent by the massacre. So this is an event which had really important ramifications at the time but which has also had a sort of afterlife because of that sense of horror, because of the recognition at the time and subsequently whatever the government's thinking, however black the McDonald's reputation, that it is very difficult to justify an action like the massacre of Glencoe. And the fact is that nobody has really tried to justify it since it happened because I think it is pretty clearly beyond the pale.
2: Thank you so much for introducing us to this terrible event. But thinking through why it happened and the consequences of that, and also just reminding us that the heart of the story is this tragedy and terrible devastation on a particular group of people.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me.
2: Finally, I'd be very grateful if you subscribed to Not Just the Tudors if you haven't already and if you'd rate and review it on your podcast platform of choice. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess, and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.